Steve's wife decided to cook his favorite meal, a beef roast. But he was puzzled when she took the meat, cut a chunk off of each end, and then placed it in the roaster. When he asked her why she did that, his wife replied, My mother always did it that way. One afternoon, Steve's mother-in-law was visiting, so he asked her, Why is it important to cut off the ends of the beef roast before cooking it? She replied, It's a family secret. I learned it from my mother. The next day, Steve, who is now very curious, called his wife's grandmother. He told her, We're trying to unravel a mystery in the house. Why is it you cut the ends off of a beef roast before cooking it? She answered, Well, it's the only way I could get the thing to fit in my roaster. Sometimes what starts out as a, as a necessary action becomes a, a meaningless ritual over time. Unless you come to understand the real point behind it in the first place. In some respects, that's the reason for the book of Esther. And let me set this up with a, a quick review, okay? If you remember, the story of Esther begins with a banquet thrown by King Ahasuerus the king of the Persian Empire. And during this banquet, Queen Vashti refuses the king's command to parade herself in front of a bunch of drunken men at this banquet. And as a consequence, she is kicked to the curb. The king has no queen. About three years go by. For the king has been trying to conquer Greece. But fails. And when he returns to Persia, he's found moping around the palace in depression. He misses Vashti, but he can't bring her back. Well, to fix his problem, it's determined the king needs a new queen. And so a beauty contest 
we want to call it that, a beauty contest is put together involving hundreds of women throughout the Persian Empire. Drafted against their will to compete for this position. And eventually, out of all these women, Esther is chosen to be the new queen. Now, Esther was an orphan who was raised by her older cousin, Mordecai. And they are Jews. But that is a closely guarded secret. One day, Mordecai was at the king's gate where he worked. And he overhears a plot to assassinate King Ahasuerus. So he tells Queen Esther, who alerts the king. Mordecai is is given credit for saving the king's life. His loyalty is documented in the book of records. But it would seem that he is completely overlooked and forgotten. Mordecai receives no recognition or reward as was the custom. Instead, this other guy named Haman comes out of nowhere and he is promoted to the number two position in the Persian Empire. Haman is a wicked man with great authority and power. But Mordecai does not respect him. And he will not bow before Haman. Haman learns about this disrespect. And he also learns that Mordecai is a Jew. Haman wants Mordecai gone. In fact, he wants to see all the Jews gone. So at the beginning of the year, as a New Year's ritual, Haman goes to see the astrologers to select the lucky moment to exterminate the Jews. And this was carried out by casting lots, literally rolling the dice in order to select the best day for success. And according to the astrologers, the 13th day of the 12th month would be that special day for destroying the Jews once and for all. So Haman, with this special day in mind, goes to King Ahasuerus and gets permission to exterminate a certain people throughout the empire. Haman does not identify these people as Jews, and quite frankly, he doesn't need to. 
for the king is foolish. And he tells Haman to do whatever he wants to do to these certain people. Haman goes away and creates a legal decree in the king's name. A decree that cannot be revoked, which authorizes the extermination of all Jews on that special day. The 13th day of the 12th month. The decree is then sent out in advance throughout the empire as a public notice to get everyone ready. Mordecai learns about the decree against the Jews. He's heartbroken. And he tells Queen Esther about it. And as a reminder, she is also a Jew. Well, after three days of fasting, Esther approaches the king unannounced. Which could result in her death on the spot. But the king is pleased to see her. And he asks her, what's on your mind? He offers to give Esther anything she wants. But she only asks that the king come to a banquet she prepared for him and Haman. The king and Haman rushed to the banquet. And Esther could have told the king about the extermination order against the Jews right then and there. But she apparently sensed that the time was not right. And the time was not right. So she asked that they come to a second banquet on the following day. As Haman makes his way home from the first banquet, he sees Mordecai at the king's gate. Mordecai doesn't even acknowledge Haman's presence. And Haman is furious. So that night, Haman erects a 75-foot pole with the intent to have Mordecai impaled on it the very next day. Haman is pulling an all-nighter with the pole. And go figure, on the very same night, King Ahasuerus can't sleep. And so he asks that the book of records be read to him by a servant. And it just so happens, in reading of the volumes and volumes of entries, the king learns 
that five years ago, Mordecai had uncovered an assassination plot. But Mordecai had not been recognized or rewarded for his loyalty, as was the custom. The following morning, Haman rushes to the palace to seek permission from the king to have Mordecai executed as soon as possible. But before he can make his request, the king commands Haman to parade Mordecai through the city square as a hero. Mordecai is honored. And Haman is humiliated. And before he knows it, Haman is rushed to the second banquet prepared by Queen Esther. Now the time is right. And Esther unloads on Haman in front of the king. And that day... Haman is impaled on the very pole he had erected for Mordecai. Haman is gone. Mordecai is promoted to the number two position in the Persian Empire. But the decree of doom for the Jews is still in effect. It can't be revoked or canceled according to Persian law. And so Mordecai prepares a second decree, which gives the Jews the legal right to defend themselves on the 13th day of the 12th month. On that day, Throughout the empire, the enemies of the Jews attacked. And over 75,000 of them are killed by the Jews in self-defense. It's a great victory for the Jews. The fighting is over. And as we might expect, a spontaneous victory celebration breaks out. A victory celebration that is memorialized by Mordecai. So, with that in mind, let's pick up where we left off last week. If you have your Bible, turn to Esther chapter 9, beginning with verse 20. Esther 9, beginning with verse 20. Then Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews who were in the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far obliging them to celebrate the 14th day of the month of Adar and the 15th day of the same month annually. Because on those days, the Jews rid themselves of their enemies. And it was a month 
which was turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and rejoicing and sending portions of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Thus the Jews undertook what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the son of Hamdatha, the Agagite, the adversary of all the Jews, had schemed against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor. That is the lot to disturb them and destroy them. But when it came to the king's attention, he commanded by letter that his wicked scheme, which he had devised against the Jews, should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. In this passage, we are told that Mordecai memorializes the victory of the Jews, obliging them to annually celebrate their triumph on the 14th and the 15th day of the Jewish calendar month of Adar, which generally for us falls in the month of March. And I say generally because the Jewish calendar on average has only 354 days. 354 days. So it does not mesh with our calendar. For example, for next year, 2023, this official celebration begins at sunset on Monday, the 6th of March, and it continues through Tuesday, the 7th of March, until nightfall. Okay? This two-day celebration is called Purim. And the origin of this word comes from the Persian word poor, which in Hebrew means lot, as in casting lots, as in rolling the dice. So poor means lot. And Purim would be the plural form of that word, as in lots. If you remember, Haman, who was very superstitious like the rest of the Persians, wanted to determine the lucky day to destroy the Jews across the empire. So he visited the astrologers who cast lots, Purim to pick that special day for all the killing. Of course, Haman had no idea that God was working behind the scenes all along. And when the dust finally settled, it was Haman, his ten sons, and over 75,000 of the enemies of the Jews who would be killed. Yes, Haman rolled the dice for good luck, but it was God who was in control the whole time. 
Okay. Let's continue with verse 26. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the name of Pur. And because of the instructions in this letter, both what they had seen in this regard and what they had what had happened to them, the Jews established and made a custom for themselves and for their descendants and for all those who allied themselves with them so that they would not fail to celebrate these two days according to their regulation and according to their appointed time annually. So these days were to be remembered and celebrated throughout every generation, every family, every providence, and every city. And these days of Purim were not to fail from among the Jews or their memory fade from their descendants. Okay. So, we are told that Purim was established and made a custom for themselves. Meaning, it was purely a Jewish invention. Unlike the Passover and other major biblical feasts and celebrations established by God to observe, Purim was created by man. And it's only found in the book of Esther. Annually, every year, in every generation, in every providence, and in every city, Purim is to be observed as a holiday by the Jews to celebrate their victory over their enemies. And it is still observed today in some form or fashion, depending on one's Jewish faith. And I want to explain what generally occurs during Purim the best I can. As I understand what happens in the here and now, today, on the day before Purim, the Jews observe the Esther fast. Called the Esther fast. And it's a one-day fast. It's a minor fast. Of no drinking, no eating, which commemorates the three days of fasting that Esther and the Jews and Susa took before she approached the king uninvited. Remember that? Then on the next day, the 14th, practicing Jews come together at the synagogue, often wearing costumes and masks, gathering for prayer, and to hear the story of Esther read publicly. The entire story of Esther is to be read from a scroll. 
word for word. That's a Jewish commandment. And all goes well. All goes well for the first two chapters. But beginning with chapter 3, it starts to get crazy. Every time the name of Esther or Mordecai are read in the story, every time, there is cheering in the audience for these two heroes. But each time Haman's name is mentioned, which is over 50 times, the audience will boo and hiss and stamp their feet. They will bring noisemakers and rattles and drums and horns. And whenever the name of Haman is mentioned, they will twirl the noisemakers, shake the rattles, pound on the drums and blow the horns, all in an attempt to drown out Haman's name. That sounds like a lot of noisy excitement. But the interruptions also make for a very long service. For according to the Jewish commandment related to Purim, it is required that every word of the story be clearly heard. Every word. And when the audience gets rowdy, when the names of Esther and Mordecai and especially Haman are mentioned... The reader has to stop until all the noise ceases. Now, when the reader <clears throat> gets to the part of the story in chapter 9, where the ten sons of Haman are mentioned, because the sons died together and were impaled together, the reader must pronounce all their names in one breath. That's the command. Okay? All ten names in one breath. Do you have it up, Kim? Oh, you laugh. We're going to do this together. <laughs> now, you notice, I think I put the phonetic spelling is up there, right? So, yeah. We're going to try this together. And let me tell you, it's going to be chaotic. Because that's the way this, this service is. It's just, it's just absolute chaos. Okay? You ready? Part... Parshendatha, Dolphon, Aspatha, Poratha, Adalia, Aridatha, Parmashta, Arishai, Aridai, Vayezatha. That was good. No, it wasn't. <laughs> so all of this makes for an interesting synagogue service. But that's just the first day. The second day of Purim, 
is set aside for rejoicing and feasting, the giving of gifts to friends and providing charity to the poor and the needy. Again, people dress up in costumes and they wear masks. I do not know why. And there is music and there is dancing and there are parades. In a nutshell, Purim, at least today, has become nothing but a big party. Similar to Mardi Gras. I liken it to Mardi Gras and I say that because there is actually a Jewish commandment associated with Purim, which reads, and I quote, okay, I'm quoting this. You ready? A person is obligated to drink on Purim until he cannot differentiate between cursed is Haman and blessed is Mordecai. Period. End quote. (laughs) Sounds like Mardi Gras. (laughs) That's right. On Purim, the Jews, with some exceptions for recovering alcoholics and those who have health problems and those who might be designated drivers, I guess, The Jews are obligated to get drunk as skunks. Until basically all words sound alike. That's a lot of drinking. That's a lot of drinking. And a lot of Jews use this day, both religious and secular people alike, to get blasted. So where does this come from? I have no idea. The best I can determine, I'm making an assumption here, is that when you, when you consider the story of Esther, there were a lot of banquets. And in these banquets, there was a lot of drinking. That's how the story started. Remember with Vashti and the men were all drunk? And so I, I'm, I'm going to assume that's what this is all about. That's the best I can do for you. I'm tapping out after that. Okay? Okay. Now before we get too far down this rabbit trail, let's, let's continue. Beginning with verse 29, we are told, Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abahal, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter about Purim. He sent letters to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, namely words of peace and truth, to establish these days of Purim at their appointed times, just as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had established for them and just as they had established for themselves and for their descendants with instructions for their times of fasting and their lamentations. The command of Esther established these customs for Purim, and it was written in the book.
In this passage, Queen Esther, along with Mordecai, write a second letter. It's a second letter. And this is to confirm the first letter written by Mordecai. Purim is to be an annual two-day holiday for the Jews to celebrate their moment of victory against their enemies. Purim is for the Jews. Purim is for the Jews. But the point behind Purim, I think, is very relevant for you and me. Purim is a holiday where the story of Esther is read word for word. And yet, there is not a single word in the story that speaks of God. God is not mentioned one single time in the entire story. For some who read this story, okay, for some who read this story, the events in Esther are seen as normal and natural. The reversals of fate and fame and favor are viewed as dumb luck. And the Jews, on their own, were victorious over Haman and their enemies. For others like me, although God was not mentioned, He was clearly working behind the scenes, weaving the choices and the actions of a few people with an invisible hand to orchestrate his plan and to accomplish his purpose of protecting and preserving his people. It's a matter of perspective. Kim, can you put that word up there? You see that? How you read that is a matter of perspective. Is God nowhere? Is he absent? Is God distant? Is he distracted? with other things and more important people? Or is he now here? Is he present? Is he working? Is God involved? The Jews in the story of Esther probably struggled with similar questions, especially when all seemed bleak and hopeless. Is God nowhere? 
Is God now here? For them, there were times when their situation looked hopeless and dire. There were times when God seemed absent and complacent. To them, God may have seemed to be nowhere. But in reality, when looking back through the story, it's clear that God was there. Right there the whole time. In control, even in the worst of it. Working for their greater good all along. Is God nowhere? Or is God now here? How do you answer that? You may not understand what God is doing in your life right now. And I completely get that. You might not have the answers to your questions as to why this and why that has happened to you. You may lack the assurance that God even cares for you. And yet, the truth of Esther reminds us that despite the chaos, God is still very much in control. And when God feels distant to you, He is much closer than you think He might be. And when God seems complacent to you. He is working on your behalf to carry out His will in His way, in His good time. You see, the book of Esther is really about God. And he truly is the point behind Purim. And even though God is not mentioned one single time, and even though it may appear that God is nowhere to be found, if we look close enough, There is nowhere that God is not. God is now here. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. Even a word that does not mention your name. I thank you that you are now here. 
you are closer than we think. I thank you for your love. I thank you for your mercy. Your mercy endures forever. I thank you for the cross. You proved how much you loved us on the cross. Father, this book is about you. About your ways, about your purposes, about your plans, about your nature and your character. It's all about you. Father, I pray that we would come to that place where we desire you. That Jesus would be our everything. I pray, Lord, that you would be honored and glorified in our hearts and in our minds, in our behavior. Help us to live in such a way that demonstrates you are now here. May you be honored and glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. In a nutshell, as I see it, the book of Esther is about God's love for us. He's not mentioned. I know that. But it's clear. That God has a purpose and a plan for us. He is passionate about us. In the story, He loved His people. Yes, there were difficult situations. And yes, there were times when things seemed dire. But all along, God was protecting and preserving His people. And they did not understand. All along, all along, He was paving the way through them for the Messiah. God was preserving them because the Messiah would come through them. When God was protecting and preserving them, He had you and me in mind as well. That's wild. He was thinking about us as He was preserving them. God loves us so much. I can't stress that enough. Does that mean life is easy? Absolutely not. There are struggles and there are losses and there is hurt and there is heartache and there is pain and there are questions and we could go on and on all day with this. But even in all of that, 
God is present. He's closer than you think. And He's madly in love with you and me. If you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I would love to introduce you to Him. If you're looking for a church home, we'd love to have you. Or if there's something else, I would love to pray with you. However God moves you and leads you, I would just ask that you'd respond to Him in obedience. That's all I can ask. And that's all you can do, or should do. Just respond. Mike and Anna Lee have been, uh, how long? It's been almost, is it? Yeah, I'm going to say it, quite a long time. Okay, okay. It, yeah, they've been with us for quite some time, and, and um, they would like to make uh, Amboy Baptist their home. And, uh, and so, I, I, I haven't chased them off, so uh, in, in spite of me, they want to they wanna stick it out. Uh, and so, uh, I've had a chance to talk with them, and, and I would uh, hardly recommend... Uh, we accept them into um, into our body. So, for all who uh, are uh, in favor of accepting Mike and Anna Lee, can I get an amen? amen. That's all of them. So, welcome aboard. <laughs> Have a seat. Thank you. <laughs> let me uh, let me close this in prayer. I want to I want to pray for our offering and then also for our fellowship as well. So, Father, I thank you so much for who you are. Uh, you're, you're such a good God. Thank you for loving us. I have a hard time getting my hands around that, just how much you do love us. Uh, oftentimes, uh, I am unlovable, it, it appears. But, Lord God, you love us so much. Thank you, Lord. Father, I thank you for this time and the service where we just give back a small portion of what you have richly blessed us with. Father, bless the gifts that we give. Bless our tithes and our offerings. And Lord, help us as a church uh, to use your money wisely. Bless the gift and the giver. And then, Father, for our fellowship, I just pray, Lord God, it would be a sweet fellowship, a time where we can connect with one another. Bless the food to our bodies, Heavenly Father. Bless those who have brought food and prepared food. May you be honored and glorified in all that's said and done. And I say this in Jesus' name. Amen.